in the construction business and tired of dealing with the indifference of big corporate suppliers? Quality Supply and Tool on South Harding Street understands. For over 25 years, owner Kevin Ane has had a different approach. We at Quality Supply and Tool take pride in being a locally owned family business committed to service. And every customer's needs are different, and we truly believe in shaping our business to our customers' needs. That's what separates us from the competition. That's Quality Supply and Tool with additional locations in Bloomington, Jeffersonville, and Lafayette to serve Hoosiers better. Partner with Quality Supply and Tool and think outside the box store. Only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. He has won his fourth Indianapolis 500. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Nice to have you over here in the States. The incredible thing is the different concept on ovals and uh, some people just can't get it right. Four champions sharing a winning formula. Haviland Formula 3. You gotta stay flat out. Sounds rather appealing. But it is if you win. Complete professionals who rely on the same complete protection you can buy right off the shelf. I'm wide open all the time. Hey, only way to do it. Haviland Formula 3 motor oil from Texaco. Why do you go anti-clockwise? You're in a foreign country, boy. (laughs) That commercial perfectly segueing us to one of the topics tonight, celebrating a birthday, as a matter of fact, for one of the most polarizing figures in Indianapolis Motor Speedway history. We shall get to that, but first allow me to do the introductions. My name is Jake Quarry. Mike Thompson joins me on this program known as Beyond the Bricks. It is produced by Eddie Garrison who mans the controls for us tonight on a Tuesday night. Good evening to you on a beautiful night in Indianapolis, Indiana. Getting set for racing this weekend, we will get you caught up on the schedule of events that will be taking place Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at 16th and Georgetown. But we'll begin with this. Mike Thompson, a good trivia question that you could ask someone would be this, and I believe it was only for... Uh, a very brief period of time. As a matter of fact, maybe a week. A seven-day period in September of 1993, Nigel Mansell concurrently held both the Formula One and IndyCar championship titles. I am assuming that is the only time that a man at one time was the champion of both. It was for only one week. But with Nigel Mansell, to reverse that a little bit and go back in time, first tested at Phoenix and the word got out that he was perhaps going to join Newman Haas Racing and Mario Andretti as the Formula One world champion and crossover to come stateside to run in the United States and North America's largest circuit of open wheel racing. It was quite the buzz and there was nobody in the world of racing that didn't have an opinion about it. It was massive, massive. If you were around in 1993 when Nigel Mansell came over, it was just gigantic. I mean, it, it, there's nothing that even compares. I mean, I, I know there was a lot of discussion when uh, Fernando Alonso came over that it was similar. There, it was nothing at all like when Nigel Mansell came. It was uh, just amazing how many people were there uh, to see Nigel Mansell and how many people were in the stands with Union Jack flags and, and Nigel Mansell shirts and things like that. It was just, it was just astounding to see. The, the fan base Nigel had and and it was interesting because you said he was a polarizing figure and he was there was there was two different camps about Nigel some people thought he was kind of aloof 
and uh, you know, not very good with fans. And I had the, it's funny because I've had some experiences with drivers that people have told me, well, that guy's such a great guy. And I've never had a positive experience with the guy. And Nigel Mansell was the exact opposite. Uh, I had had some people say, oh, Mansell, you know, he can be very prickly and difficult. And I, Nigel Mansell was always incredibly kind to me, very nice to me, um, super, super guy, very friendly to me, um, and and just, like, treated me like, you know, like we were long-lost friends and things like that. And, and he didn't know me and, you know, or anything like that. He just was just – he just was very, very, very pleasant to me. Every time I ever had an interaction with him, it was positive. So – uh, I always, I always had a really positive, positive experience with Nigel Mansell. You know, Nigel Mansell kind of ties into this weekend. It is fitting that Nigel Mansell we would be talking about on this day in the week of the Brickyard 400 because there are many. While it is perhaps speculation, but I think almost accepted speculation, there are many that would believe that Nigel Mansell actually indirectly might have had something to do with the putting together not only of the Brickyard 400, but just kind of in the rise of NASCAR in general. Because it was when the France family, one of the times when they had come over to meet with Tony George, Nigel Mansell at that point was not confirmed yet as coming over officially and was doing a tire test and doing it with Emerson Fidel. I believe it was Bobby Rahal, excuse me, Bobby Rahal and Mario Andretti, I believe is who the three were. But the Francis saw the the massive amount of media coverage for Nigel Mansell to come over and run in IndyCar. And I think that that motivated them to understand the popularity and fully grasp, not that they would not have anyway, but to grasp the popularity of open wheel racing in the United States and to also, I think, cement to them the necessity to branch out NASCAR and expand beyond just the esoteric southeastern based sport that at that time it was although it was growing and that i think many people believe was kind of the final motivating factor in securing for them that yes in fact they needed to run at the indianapolis motor speedway like nigel mansell to have that facility validate nascar as the racing series that of course it would ultimately become by many estimations the preeminent racing series in the united states taking over in the late 90s and into the early 2000s and its apex of popularity perhaps being cemented by the indianapolis motor speedway but as for nigel mansell himself my favorite memory of mansell from a personal standpoint uh i did not i was not covering the 500 at that time mike but in working at wrtv channel 6 the abc affiliate here in indianapolis later And at that time, like in college, kind of as a shadow intern, if you will, one of my favorite pieces of video is Scott Hoke, who, a fabulous guy, and had long time been a member of Channel 6 Sports Department staff. I saw a piece of videotape where Nigel Mansell was sitting on a golf cart during practice in 1993. And Scott Hoke walks up to him, and there was really nobody around. And he said, hey, Nigel, any chance that I can get a quick word with you? And Nigel Mansell, sitting on a golf cart, looked at Scott Hoke and said, for what is this for? And Scott Hoke said, uh, WRTV, it's the ABC television affiliate here in Indianapolis. And Nigel Mansell looked at Scott Hoke and said, by affiliate, you mean local? 
And he said, yes, the ABC in Indianapolis. And he said, so not national. And Scott said, that's correct. And Nigel Mansell looked at Scott Hoke, looked straight forward, put his right foot down, and off went the golf cart. (laughs) And I don't think he was, like, rude per se. It's just Nigel Mansell was a busy dude, man. And, like, he was dialed in and locked in. And in 1993, as we talked about, you know, he comes to Indianapolis. And I think, Mike, the reality is this. There was a pride amongst people, especially Indy 500 fans, about the fact that this was the Indy 500. This was the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And guys weren't supposed to be able to just come over and be like a duck to water and be able to immediately be competitive. You had to come in. You had to earn your stripes. You had to go through the pains. You had to go through the dramas. You had to go through the struggles. You had to go through the the headaches of learning this track. And quite frankly, Mike, the reality is this. That really wasn't applicable to Nigel Mansell because from the time he got on that track, man, he looked pretty darn comfortable. From the time he got on every track, and that's what I think bothered a lot of people, is that Nigel Mansell made it look very, very easy, with the exception of the accident he had at Phoenix in his first oval attempt. Let's remember that uh, the great uh, stats guru, Russ Thompson, came up with an amazing stat a couple weeks ago. Since 1956, I think he said there's only four drivers who have won four straight oval races in what is, you know, we know as championship racing, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it, cart, IndyCar, whatever version you want to call it as, only only four drivers have won four straight oval races. And, you know, a couple of them you would think of immediately. The one of them you probably wouldn't think of immediately is Nigel Mansell. Nigel Mansell won four straight oval races, including the Michigan 500 on what was a pretty brutally hot day at MIS, uh, a day that I got to very, very lucky and watch the race with Paul Newman standing on top of the media center and, and making nickel bets with him on who would lead the next lap. So um, Nigel Mansell was a heck of a race car driver. Let's not forget that. I would assume Paul Newman bet on Nigel Mansell every lap, right? No, what's funny is he was betting on Mario because he and Mario were so close. In fact, that commercial we just played, that was Paul Newman voicing that commercial for Haviland. And Paul Newman... Uh, came up and it was just myself, my friend, Mark Bournes and, and Paul Newman at a bodyguard, the four of us standing there. And he saw me listening on the scanner. He's like, who are you listening to? I said, I'm listening to Nigel. Cause uh, Nigel was really, if you ever listen to Nigel Mansell on the scanner, he was very animated and used what I could best say was a lot of colorful language. <laughs> um, so the King's um, English, right? Yeah. He used a lot of colorful language. So at one point, Paul Newman asked if he could borrow my scanner to listen to the scanner, which I'm like, of course, I'm not going to tell Paul Newman he can't borrow my scanner. So Paul Newman's not listening on my scanner, which was pretty funny. And he said, well, who do you think is going to win the race? And I said, well, Nigel's got him covered today. And he said, no, Mario will win this race. And he said, we're going to bet every time each lap. And he goes, every time Nigel leads a lap, I'll give you a nickel. And every time Mario leads a lap, you have to give me a nickel. And we were literally making nickel bets back and forth. And it was one of the most surreal moments of my life because my friend Mark kept looking at me like, we're making nickel bets with Paul Newman on the on the 1993 Michigan 500 standing on top of the media center. I mean, it was it was really fun. And what was cool about it was, for me, is Paul Newman in that instant was just a race fan. He had found a couple guys. We were just standing there. And what was neat about it was we just treated Paul Newman that day, just like he was just a regular guy. And I think he really liked that. And we just were just shooting the breeze with Paul Newman. And, you know, he had a blast. And then 
about 20 laps to go, he knew one of his cars was going to win the race. And he's like, I got to get down to victory lane. And I was thinking, uh, you know, I mean, I knew he was right. And, and Nigel ended up winning the race. So I had a, when I went home that day, though, it was funny because when I went home, he that showed day, you I had a, a bucket full. I had a pocket full of nickels from Paul Newman. I can tell you that. I was going to say he shorted you a buck. You had enough to go buy some Newman's salad dressing on the way home. Um, Nigel Mansell, by the way, in his rookie campaign at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, 77th running of the race, 1993, of course, in car number five. He started in position number eight. He finished three spots higher and was awfully, awfully strong all day long. Here is the Indianapolis Motor Speedway historian emeritus Donald Davidson on Nigel Mansell. Uh, but then another one uh, that, that wasn't really a rookie but uh, uh, caused a huge um, uh, amount of interest was Nigel Mansell. And when people talk about Danica mania, well, there was a lot of attention when Danica came, but it it didn't hold a candle to, to Nigel Mansell. I've never seen anything like that. That was absolutely huge. Um and, uh, you know, was he a rookie? Well, golly, he was the world champion. <laughs> so um, w- w- was fairly uh, w- was fairly familiar with rear-engine cars and so on and so forth. But um, clearly, I mean, it would have been a surprise if he hadn't have won the Rookie of the Year. In fact, what a surprise it was, I think, that uh, Stefan Johansson, with the Bettenhausen team, actually qualified faster than Mansell did, <laughs> which uh, that that was a surprise. But uh, anyway, that that uh, the impact of being of him being here, I think no other driver, rookie or veteran, uh, created the um, turmoil. I, and I mean that in a in a positive fashion, where every every time Mansell appeared, <laughs> there would be cameras and people tripping over each other and cables, and and it was sort of like a uh, it was like an army of, of followers, and you could hear hundreds of footsteps <laughs> running every time Mansell made an appearance. Mansell actually led in 1993 in that race on three different occasions. As a matter of fact, Nigel Mansell put himself in position to perhaps win the race because he was leading the race on lap number 184 when a restart was created. I believe it was due to a stalled car of Lynn St. James, if my memory serves correctly. But on lap 184, coming around to complete that lap as the caution flag was getting ready to go back to green, Nigel Mansell had Emerson Fittipaldi, another Formula One world champion just behind him. And then running in third, it was Ari Leyendyke. And Mansell, as later, it would be told by Jack Arute on ABC television, that Nigel Mansell, that Jim McGee was on the radio trying to tell Mansell how to get a good jump on the restart, and he didn't get it. Not only did Fittipaldi get him, but it was a buy one, get one free on the restart, turning to lap 185. And the green flag is out. We are back to racing. And Emerson Fittipaldi makes a move on Nigel Mansell. He's got him going into one, but Lionike is also right there. Oh, they went side by side, and Mansell fell all the way back to third place. Gary, we got him coming right at you. As they work through turn two, that may be the inexperience on restarts on the oval for Nigel Mansell. Right now, he is falling to third place as they work up the backstretch. Mansell would not recount the lead, and in 1993, your winner would be Emerson Fittipaldi. Bobby Unser would later say on the television broadcast, Mike, 
I just don't think Mansell realized how hungry these guys were to try to win the biggest race in the world, which is exactly what happened. And Mansell fell from first to third in that race, which is where he would finish. A pretty funny moment took place a couple of years ago at the Indianapolis International Airport when Ari Leyendijk posted a picture on social media. Nigel Mansell's car was on display at the airport and Leyendijk took a picture of himself standing in front of it with a caption that simply said, I passed Mansell again. I always thought it was pretty funny, actually. Mansell would come back in 1994, and if you recall, Mike, in 1994, Mansell again was really, really strong, but that was one of those crazy incidents where he was involved in an accident with Dennis Vitolo, and one of those where you watched it and thought, did I see what I thought I just saw? Yeah, that was a situation where Mansell... He had fallen a lap down and had just gotten his lap back and was in prime position to to start moving back up. Now, of course, that was the year of the beast, so he probably the beasts were going to probably win either way. But Mansell had just gotten his lap back and there was a caution flag and Dennis Vitolo came along and, and landed on top of his car. I mean, launched over another car and literally landed right on top of Nigel's car. And, and uh, Nigel was obviously none too happy about it and, and declined. Uh, medical attention which the series wasn't too happy with him for doing that as well and uh, that was sort of the beginning of the end of Nigel's IndyCar career because he uh, he was pretty unhappy with that situation and at the end of the year he went back to Formula One and ended up winning another Formula One race before the end of his Formula One career. Heck of a talent no question about it talking about Nigel Mansell who now celebrates his 70th birthday. Fun look back on one of the more as we talked about polarizing but indisputably fine drivers to race at the indianapolis motor speedway when we come back on this episode of beyond the bricks let's shift gears just a little bit pardon the pun and go from open wheel back to stock car racing talking to a guy who has covered some brickyard 400s also covers srx racing and like mike spends way too much money on weird sports memorabilia that is all racing related both of them have um, investments actually in storage units full of nothing but helmets cards and uh hero cards isn't that right Mike's that a fair That's statement? Correct. That's fair. <laughs> All right, Matt Yoakum joins us to talk about that and more when we come back to this edition of Beyond the Bricks. This is Beyond the Bricks on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Hey, good Tuesday evening to you. Again, get you set for the schedule of events taking place Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Indianapolis Motor Speedway this weekend for the IndyCar NASCAR, I guess you could say triple header because you've got the IndyCar Gallagher Grand Prix. You've got the Xfinity Pennzoil 150. You also have, of course, the Cup Series running the Brickyard on Sunday. So three different races taking place this weekend. We'll get you caught up on all of that before the end of the program tonight. My name is Jake Query. Eddie Garrison is manning the controls for us tonight. Mike Thompson with me as well. And joining us now on the program, as he's been kind enough to do, kind of been a tradition, as a matter of fact, when we do Beyond the Bricks, because he's a wealth of knowledge. He needs no introduction to motorsports fans when it comes to manning the sidelines, the pit road, if you will, for race broadcasts in a variety of capacities in the course of his career, of course, in NASCAR, now currently doing so in sports cars as well as SRX. Talking about Matt Yoakum, who joins us. And Matt, first off, welcome back to Indianapolis via the airwaves. It's always good to talk to you. Well, I think when you look at this time of year, it's become our little tradition to always talk about 
the Brickyard 400 in NASCAR in Indianapolis, and then we always seem to segue from there to just about everything that's racing-related because, uh, you know, that's one of the cool things about your show is that the passion for racing is the main topic, and it really splinters out into a number of different disciplines. Uh, between NASCAR, IndyCar, you know, IMSA is going to be uh, at Indy uh, in another month. And, you know, it, it's just one of those uh, real cool pilgrimages that everybody always have about going back to Indy and the Pagoda and, and you name it. So it's a special place, certainly a special time. Well, let's begin with that. IMSA just had, you know, a, a lot of people loved watching IMSA out there just doing a test within the last couple of weeks. And we know, I think, Matt, you know, everybody in Indianapolis, I think, understands what that facility has meant to this town, clearly. But let's go back to the beginning seeds of the Brickyard 400 and Cup coming here. I remember at that time, like in the early 90s, when the word got out of this thought process that perhaps Cup was going to run at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, there was admittedly amongst the Indianapolis 500 diehards, you know, an incredulous nature of acceptance of hearing that news and a real apprehension. And of course, it was gangbusters from the get-go. And I think one of the things that people here appreciated about it and made it special was NASCAR's openness to for their drivers and fans to show their appreciation of their acceptance of the fact that it was a system of reciprocity. The, the series was in need of the Speedway, perhaps for a final piece of validity, and the Speedway was in, in need of NASCAR for a little piece of validity for all-encompassing. And it was a marriage that worked from the beginning. Can you take us back from your standpoint, Matt, of just kind of that overall news and acclimation period of what it meant to have cup cars at Indianapolis? Well, I recall when, you know, word quietly was circulating uh, among a a very small circle of the uh, stakeholders that there was going to be a test at Indianapolis uh, coming up you know, and a little bit later that summer and they were going to try to keep it quiet and until they could get everything, you know, all together. Uh, And then news broke that it was going to take place. And I think that if you look at, because originally it was the, well, we're just going to go there, going to do a look, see, see how our cars uh, compete, you know, on the speedway and what kind of race we can put on and that type of thing. And, and I think if you look at the folks that were in NASCAR, I think if you look the the, the fans that were in IndyCar, I think you could already start to feel the excitement. Yes, you had some folks that were the diehards that were like, oh, we can't have the tin tops come to the brickyard. This is, you know, hollowed ground and this and that. But I think if you look at the majority of, of a race fan, the – the the demo and, and the makeup of a race fan in general. I think if you like something, you'll like something else. And I think that's the one constant that you see. You've got people that tune in on Thursday night to see this week at Eldora on a dirt track. We'll have a drag racer, you know, a champion NHRA drag racer. You'll have IndyCar champions. You'll have NASCAR champions. 
and they're all out of their element at a dirt track racing, uh, you know, for fun and bragging rights. And I think that that carries over to the race fan itself. So I think that as word got out and then as they're like, all right, guess what? We're going to be going. And the excitement took off. And I think I agree with you. I think the fact that if you look at the folks in NASCAR, you go back to Eddie Wood. Eddie Wood remembers what it was like sitting uh, in his third grade class. And I can't remember his teacher's name, but he had snuck in his transistor radio because they had school on Memorial Day uh, in the South at that juncture. And he had the earpiece going up the back of his shirt. And he was sitting there listening to the 1965 Indianapolis 500 because his dad and his uncles were there pitting Jimmy Clark. And one of the first things that he did when he got to the Brickyard in 1994 was he walked out to pit road and he stood in the pit box where Jimmy Clark pitted that day where his dad and uncles uh, were a major part of that victory of, you know, Ford's win, the rear engine, you name it, all that uh, transpired historically that day. And the Wood Brothers played a small part of that. And for him, that was, you know, just a checking the box, such a cool moment to be able to walk out there. And his feeling about being at Indy mm. was the same as everybody else. I mean, for years, you would see typically on second qualifying weekend, sometimes on first, you know, Richard Petty would, would fly up and he would hang out and, you know, see the, the, the different folks. You'd, you'd have guys from NASCAR that would come up and hang out for a day or two and then go off to uh, wherever their event was. So there was always that respect that everybody had, you know, for the Speedway, what it meant. Because also you got to look back in time. I mean, Clarence Cagle, who was a longtime superintendent, who I think – you know, had it not been for Clarence Cagle, I don't know if Mr. Holman ever could have gotten the speedway around to where it was to continue through the decades to make it successful like it was after he purchased it. And Clarence, the, the last few years after he retired from Indy, he was down in Daytona helping out Mr. France, um, you know, just kind of helping things around the speed plant there uh, on race weekends. And I would always see him great to go to dinner with he and, and Mrs. Cagle, I mean, Gladys was, you know, top shelf just like Clarence was. And so you had a lot of mixing of, you know, discipline, so to speak. And that respect, you know, so carried over. And then I think when you look at who won the very first Brickyard 400, and then, you know, as Dale Earnhardt said, well, he was the first man to win the Brickyard 400 in 1995. But I, I think then you look at Dale Jarrett and how they started the tradition of kissing the bricks. And now everybody wants to kiss the bricks that they win in Indy. So I think it's really been a fantastic story and a narrative through several decades. And even running on the road course, I don't care what anybody says, when you pull through the gate, it's Indianapolis. One of the things I think, Matt, you talk about is is this these different disciplines coming together. And we have that again this weekend uh, with the cup race. You know, we've got, you know, Jensen Button. I mean, who would have believed a few years ago you'd have Jensen Button in a, in a cup series race? You know, you have uh, SVG coming from, uh, you know, supercars. You know, so we have that again a little bit with different disciplines, you know, coming together for this Brickyard weekend. To me, it almost feels like that very first Brickyard when you had A.J., 
uh, qualifying, you know, Danny Sullivan, you know, you had a couple others. And it has that same feel of, I mean, you even go back to the 60s when you'd have, you know, Jack Brabham or, you know, Jimmy Clark coming over, Graham Hill, guys that would come over for, you know, the one-off and, and run the Indy 500. Maybe they might run Milwaukee or, or Riverside at the end of the year, like Jim Clark did uh, a couple times. But it, it has that specialness of, hey, this is the big event, and, you know, we're big-time trophy chasers. And then you look at, you know, what S- SVG did at Chicago. You've got Jensen Button. Um, and I just think there's so many great storylines, you know, once again, um, you know, there that I think that it's going to be a fun weekend. And the people who are going to be uh, the winners, once again, are going to be the fans. I just want to ask you, Matt, about the resurgence of, uh, you know, with Roush Fenway, with Roush Fenway and Keselowski, because, you know, you know, Jack Roush's team has had some lean years. We all know that the last few years. And it really seems like they've they've really started to put it all together, obviously, the last couple of weeks. You know, they've won the last the last two races now. You can't obviously do any better than that. But it really seems like uh, with, with Chris Buescher and with Brad Kozlowski that, that Roush, the Roush name is starting to finally get back to where it was a few years ago. Totally agree. I also think in some ways you can look at how you're seeing somewhat of a changing of the guard. If you go back, you know, 13 years ago, uh, 14 years ago uh, or so, you had Tony Stewart leading Joe Gibbs Racing and teaming up with Gene Haas, forming Stewart Haas, and all of a sudden, you know, he helped with his people, with his passion with his ideas and being able to attract, you know, some different people and also forcing some change. All of a sudden they not only started winning races, they won championships. You look at what Jimmy Johnson is starting to do at legacy. You look at what Brad Keselowski has already started doing at Roush Fenway Keselowski. And I think a part of that has to go to the timing, just like Trackhouse. I think four years ago, had Trackhouse started to do what they started to do now with the new car, I don't think they would have been as successful. I think the new car, the Gen 7 car, has been an equalizer on a number of fronts, which has helped some new folks coming in or some folks that have been there forever that kind of got off track and has been struggling. And that has been Roush Fenway. And I think when Keselowski went in and made it RFK, bringing in some of, you know, because Brad is all in. And he is a student of the game. He is a very uh, impressive uh, person when you sit down and talk thought process about auto racing, about people, about how to run a company. And he's bringing that to the table which I think is helping elevate RFK into the contender that they are. And a lot of people have thought that Chris Buescher is an extremely talented person, but I think it also shows you what it took to get that team in position to where they can capitalize on a day like they did yesterday and last weekend. So I I think you have to give it to NASCAR as far as their idea of, 
bringing in a new car where there was a lot of fear factor, a lot of people that weren't happy about it. But I think at the end of the day, I thought Michigan was a fantastic race. Best Michigan race I've seen, I think, in a long time. But then again, you can go to Pocono. I thought Pocono was a fantastic race. I think this car has been a game changer in a lot of different areas that has really uh, spiked up the competition and the, the competitive level throughout the field. I think you're back to almost where, you know, on any given day, so-and-so has a shot to win at this place. And I think that's kind of where we're back, you know, like IndyCar racing. I mean, my God, you look at Iowa. Now, if you would have taken one guy out of the field, and we all know who that is, but if you, if you take, you know, him out, it's an unbelievable race at Iowa. But still, you know, even with, with Newgarden winning it, and and put and sweeping the weekend and everything, I, I think you know IndyCar is, is looking stout on so many different levels. The fan turnout, uh, the excitement every race weekend, and uh, and I think NASCAR has that. But I think in all, if you go across the board, I, I think guys, we're seeing a resurgence in auto racing in general, in a number of different series, and IMSA is right there with them. The crowd that we had this past weekend at road America was the largest crowd there since 1979. It was amazing. The campers, they had, you know, closed off all the reserve camping. Um, it, it was just, it had a, such an energy and such a feel. And I think that's what you're seeing. IndyCar, NASCAR, IMSA. I think it's trickling down to more of the grassroots racing. So I think, you know, many people are saying, oh, I think auto racing is on the decline. I think if you're an auto racing fan, it might not be any better than it is right now. And amongst those who is growing it, of course, in a continued effort for nearly a decade, will be the subject when we come back with Matt Yoakum about not only another series that we have yet to mention that Matt knows a lot about, but a guy that also is still trying to get things going for his team in NASCAR this year. You know Matt Yoakum, of course, from his years, nearly 20 of them covering NASCAR races on television and now covering SRX that we will get to as well as IMSA. And we'll continue the conversation when we return to Beyond the Bricks. is Beyond the Bricks on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Keep your eyes on number six, Pete Hamilton. He goes by million, and now he's moving up on Richard Petty. Move on, Petty, I'm coming through. That's what you think, Hamilton. Petty's moving on. I've got a pretty girl to kiss at the finish line. No girl's gonna kiss you with grease on your head. Huh? Change that oil. Dallas for natural looking hair. I can assure you that even with grease in his hair, Matt Yoakum's daughter is more than willing to kiss him. Right? It's part of being <laughs> part of being a great father, right, Matt? Uh, yeah. That commercial, of course, from back in the day, if you will, Richard Petty, Pete Hamilton, Vitalis commercial um, from back in the day. Matt Yoakum joining us. Matt, let's talk about this before we get to talking about SRX, which I know um, you know coming up, big one here that we are going to have on Thursday evening as always when it comes to SRX racing but Tony Stewart you know was out here kind of promoting obviously now the fact that he is crossing over into the NHRA side of things but pretty vocal about just frustration maybe for lack of a better word 
about NASCAR and in his opinion the way that it's you know scored I think that kind of goes with Tony Stewart in general but just his team and where it stands you know IMS is obviously a track that's been good to Tony Stewart and vice versa is this the weekend where they can maybe get things going a little bit and where do things stand with his team I think if you look at 2023 similar to 2022 I think some guys hit it right out of the box with the new car I think of all the manufacturers, Ford might have had a little bit of a slower start, but they certainly, I feel like, this year have turned the corner. And, you know, you look at Team Penske, you look at what RFK has done. I feel like for whatever reason, Stuart Haas, you know, they're missing it somewhere. And, you know, front row, you have to give a a call to that bunch because they've done – an extremely good job, I feel like, uh, overachieving. And, you know, the crew chief that was there left, he went to Hendrick, and front row is still overachieving and doing well. So maybe they're not overachieving. You know, they're they're actually uh, producing uh, right where they should be. So I feel like Stuart Haas is the team that I don't know what's the missing element, but they certainly are missing something. And... You know, I, I don't know what the answer would be. Only, you know, Greg Zipidelli, the, the the VP of competition and, and all the the crowd that's over there. But it just seems like for whatever reason, you know, the past couple of years, um, they've just been missing it. Now, Kevin Harvick has come close a couple of times this year of, of winning. I know that he would love to win one more Brickyard. I mean, there's a kid that, you know, met Rick Mears childhood hero rick signed a a picture to him you know said hope to to see you here someday and harvick and i talked about it the day that he won the brickyard back in 2003 and how that had been his journey his focus was to follow in rick mears's footsteps and win a race at the indianapolis motor speedway and he's done it i think everybody would love to see a storybook ending to his career and to win uh, one more Brickyard. You know, Casey Kane, Ryan Newman, those guys were able to pull that off. And I think that if you look at um, where Harvick is the past, you know, month or so, they seem like they've got a little bit extra, you know, hop in their step. When you look at the scoring rundown, they seem like they're they're much better than they were the first few months of the season. So maybe this could be, uh, you know, their weekend. Yeah, it's not on the oval. It's on the road course, but boy, he's one heck of a good little road racer. So, you know, anything can happen. But like you mentioned, you got SVG there, Jensen Button. You've got some wild cards. I think it spices it up for the fans, uh, especially. Matt, switching gears a little bit to talk about SRX. How much fun are you having doing the the pit reporting for SRX? I mean, the drivers look like they have a good time. The fans clearly are responding to it and having a good time. Just how much fun is it for you to, to get to do the SRX pit reporting every week? To me, with my DNA back to the old IROC series, uh, and Mr. Penske, he was my first boss when my mom worked at MIS and I worked on the maintenance crew and cut the grass and, and you know, washed his motorcycles that he kept there at the Speedway when he and his family would come out and everything. So he's always been my hero. Um, having a chance to, to do SRX has been uh, really a, a cool chapter in my career because it's not quite IROC. It's a little bit IROC, but boy, it's so much more because 
of all the different venues that we get a chance to go to. You look at Berlin last week. I don't recall the feeling of electricity in the air at a short track like I have there uh, in a long time. But every time we go to an SRX race, that's the feeling. You throw in the drivers. You know, those guys are having so much fun. The only bummer part about SRX is that we can't bottle up all the great stories that these guys tell because it's almost like a family reunion in, in a sense that so many, it's like the, the Rolling Stones. And I remember reading uh, about a big concert that they were going to have and all the bands were going to be there. And Mick Jagger went on and on about how it was going to be so cool to be at the same concert as The Who because in the past – They've always been at the same concert with The Who, but they never got a chance to hang out. And this was going to be a different type of a show uh, several days in a row. And they were actually going to get a chance to hang out with all their peers um, who they were friends with, but didn't get that sort of a of a hangout atmosphere. And this is what SRX is. Um, I laughed uh, at IRP, and uh, you had Elio and Tony Kanon there, and after practice, everybody's sitting around. They're talking about how the car was and, and their take on it and this and that. And it's fun, but keep in mind, everybody wants the trophy. And you had Elio and Kanon there talking in Portuguese, trying to keep their you know trade secrets between the two of them. And, and so it's neat to see those two best friends from childhood now this year rotating a car together uh, with Team Brazil. So uh, it, it's just it's a really a fun a fun opportunity. It kind of takes you back to Thursday Night Thunder when, you know, you'd see. Matt, Rich that's Vogler. the best part, man. I mean, the yeah. rebrand of you'd, Thursday you'd, Night Thunder is such a tribute, right, to so many guys. Yeah. we got about a minute left, but that part to me, for you, that's got to be the ultimate thrill because it is such a cool tip of the cap to such a great racing heritage. I really want to talk to Doug Bowles and go, hey, can we expand that dirt track in turn three just a little bit more? <laughs> yep. Maybe we can do an SRX race there. And by the way, that guy, I love Doug Bowles, his enthusiasm for racing. If we could bottle that and just sell that at every convenience store, I mean, we would have the, the number one sport in the entire in the entire country because – I mean, that guy is so positive, and uh, so it's neat that they're going to have a, a big weekend at the Speedway. We're going to be at uh, Eldora on Thursday night on ESPN, 9 p.m. Eastern, and uh, we're going to have some old-school fun. Thursday night, 9 o'clock, old-school fun. That's exactly what we'll have actually next year, Matt, when we have you back for Beyond the Bricks. Appreciate the time tonight, as always. Matt Yoakum, again, be sure to watch him on Thursday Night Thunder for SRX Racing. That will be on Thursday night. Again, your schedule coming up this weekend, Friday, 9 o'clock, Gallagher Grand Prix. That's the IndyCar side of things. Practice gets underway at 9 o'clock in the morning. That's a 90-minute practice until 10.30. And then it's Indy Next coming up at 11 o'clock until 11.50. This is all on Friday followed by the Gallagher Grand Prix qualifying from 12.30 until 2 o'clock. Then Indy Next qualifies for their race from 2.20 to 2.40, followed by practice for the Gallagher Grand Prix. That's the IndyCar cars from 4 o'clock until 4.30. And then the Indy Next race takes place from 4.50 until 5.50 on Friday before the gates close and then gets set for a big weekend of racing. Thanks for listening. This has been Beyond the Bricks.